I'm Jonathan Capehart, sitting in today for Leonard Lopate. For centuries, humans believed that the tides were a spiritual manifestation of the moon's divine power on Earth. It turns out our ancestors weren't too far from the truth. On today's Please Explain, we're talking about the mystery and magic of ocean tides with Jonathan White, a marine conservationist, sailor, and surfer, and the author of Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean, published by Trinity University Press. He details his travels around the world, exploring some of the, uh, exploring some of the globe's most powerful tides, looks at how tides have shaped human civilizations, and reveals what they can tell us about our planet's future. And I'm very pleased to welcome Jonathan White to today's Please Explain, and we invite you to join the conversation at 212-433-9692. Do you have a question about the science of tides? Give us a call. Jonathan, thank you very much for, for being our guy on Please Explain. Thank you, Jonathan. It's nice to be here. Okay, so I'm sure people, they have an idea of what tides are, but what are tides, technically speaking? Well, I guess technically speaking, tides are um, an influence on the sea level from astronomical factors. In other words, the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. And you, you call tides, I mean, a lot of people know that the moon has something to do with the tides. But what exactly is the relationship? And, and you actually call it a celestial dance, a partnership that brings new meaning to the concept of a long-distance relationship. That's a very romantic um, a vision of what tides are. Yes, I know. It's, um, it, it was interesting in my, in my research. I, I, um, I, of course, thought that the tides was something fairly simple, that I could read a couple of books and a couple of articles and spend a couple of weeks and, and learn pretty much everything there was to know about the tides. But, um, you know, the more I read and the more I studied, the more fascinating and complex and poetic it became. So, you know, my journey quickly turned from two books and a couple of articles to 10 to 50 to 300 books and um, a couple of weeks turned into 10 years. So wow. it's, it was a it was a very long and interesting and deep journey. Well, can you remember you said you're fascinated. What was the can you remember that first thing that sparked your imagination about tides? Well, uh, I think really it came, it, the, the nut of it came from a, a near loss of a big old schooner that I had up in Alaska with a large tide and gale. And I, you know, I grew up on the California coast surfing and sailing and kayaking and so forth, and I always had a tide chart in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, like lot, lots of people, I could read the tide chart very well, but I didn't know really what was going on, the mechanics of it. And then when I almost lost this big old boat up in Alaska in the mid-'90s, um, I decided it was time to learn what was going on. And that's when I started that journey, really. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned tide charts. What exactly are they? When you're looking at it, what, what are you looking at or looking well, for? Yeah, well, basically, um, you know, like a lot of us who live on the coast have some familiarity with uh, tide charts. I mean, it's basically a series of numbers and times that tell us when the tide is highest and when it's lowest. And, um, you know, they, they are, as I mentioned earlier, they, it's, they're based on an astronomical 
prediction, and NOAA does those. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are lots and lots of things that can influence or even mess with the tide chart. For example, wind can bring in a tide faster and make it larger, or if the wind is against the tide, it can push it back and make it smaller and arrive later. Or low-pressure systems, storm systems, can have a huge effect on the tide, making them larger or smaller. Uh, so um, when you lost your your boat, um, the, the schooner in Alaska, that was in, in 1990? Uh, 91 or 92, mm-hmm. somewhere right in there. And so what exactly about that experience um, uh, taught you uh, about tides? Was it that what you just said, that you have your tide chart, but you have to pay attention to a whole lot of other factors? You just can't rely on that chart. Well, um, well, actually, not exactly. I, I was up, and by the way, I was, I, you know, this is an old schooner that I started a nonprofit educational organization on, and we ran seminars on the boat from Seattle up to southeast Alaska, all around Haida Gwaii and Vancouver Island. And we had seminars on the boat that were like six or seven days long, and we had poets and writers and thinkers and, and uh, musicians on board. And I did that for 11 years during the 80s and early 90s. And, and uh, I was coming back from a seminar off of the coast of Chichikov Island, and I, it was a beautiful evening, quiet and sunny, um, but I heard on the radio that there was a gale predicted for that night, so I picked this really protected anchorage um, in on Cruzoff Island, and we went in there and had dinner and went to bed, and I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and it was blowing a gale indeed, and the boat had dragged anchor all the way across the bay and was aground in the mud. And um, when I looked at the tide chart, I realized that we were at the top of a high tide, which is the worst place to be when you're aground, because it means that the tide is only going to go out from there. Oh, so you're stuck. Yeah, you're stuck. And I was in probably two feet of mud, and I was looking at the chart and saw that the tide was going to go out 16 feet in the next six hours. Hmm. So the boat was going to go all the way down. And in fact, where it was was going to be completely dry. And I had 12 passengers for, you know, paying passengers on board. And uh, there was bear sign, grizzly bear sign all over the beach. Like. We had to get people <laughs> off and we posted somebody with a rifle. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy experience. And the boat indeed went all the way down and got stuck in the mud and opened up. So when the tide came back in, she didn't want to come back up. Instead, she stayed there, and the tide just flooded swamped the, the boat. Swamped the boat. Yeah. Wow. So really, it was, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was one of those wake-up calls. I mean, I'd been aground before, but never that bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I came out of there. I mean, basically, I got the tide out of the boat in the end. We didn't lose the boat. Ah, but okay. I couldn't get the tide out of my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just decided that, okay, it's time to learn what's going on here. I knew the moon had something to do with it like a lot of people, but not sure what. And um, so that was the beginning of the journey. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up the moon because I was, I was going to ask you, how do the phases of the moon affect the tides? Well, um, well, first of all, I should say that there are over 400 
relationships of the sun and moon that affect the tide. What, so for, there are there are many, many, many of them. But the one, the common ones that we know, are uh, what we see in the sky. We see a full moon or a new moon, and that that means a higher high tide. Mean, a, mean I'm sorry, a low tide. I mean, excuse me, a large tide, which means. Um, a high high and a low low. So that would be a a new moon and a full moon. And then uh, at quarter moons, you would see lesser tides called neap tides. And and then basically what it gets down to is all these varying relationships of the sun and the moon. The sun contributes about 50% of the influence on the tide as the moon does. But together, of course, they make a strong influence. So it's all about whether they're working together, the sun and the moon, or they're working at odds to each other. So, the, so correct me if I'm wrong. The moon's relationship to the tides is gravitational. Is that the same as the sun, or what is the sun's impact or relationship with the tide? Uh, they're both gravitational. Okay. And um, if you, you know, you can divide this, the subject into two parts, really. What's happening up there, meaning the sun and the moon and the earth and so forth, astronomy, and what's happening down here, which, which we call fluid dynamics. And even that you can divide into two, what's happening in the deep ocean and what's happening in the shallow water and the coastal areas. In the deep ocean, the tides are generally about 18 inches, and 12 inches of that is contributed by the moon's gravitational pull, and six inches is contributed by the sun's gravitational pull. How on earth did people figure this figure this out? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and really, you know, like for ninety nine percent of human history, we had no idea how this worked. I mean, for sure, we had practical understanding about the relationships of the moon and the sun and the tides because, you know, early on our ancestors were coastal people and so they they saw these relationships for sure, but they didn't know how it worked and it really wasn't until the end of the scientific revolution when Newton and his colleagues like Kepler and um, Descartes and so forth gave us the laws of planetary motion and gravity so that we could even get a finger hold on the mechanism by which this all happened. And it's been, you know, what, 250, well, 300 years since then. And we know a lot about the tides, but we still don't know everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, speaking of, you know, coastal cultures, I mean, folks believe that the tides were evidence of of a living, breathing Earth. No? Yes. I mean, you can imagine, again, our ancestors being on the coast and, and uh, of course, knowing the practical relationship. But once in a while, they must have wondered, how does the moon do it? You know, how does it reach out over all that distance and silently stir the oceans, you know, the waters of the earth? And um, so they, there was a lot of speculation about this. You know, some people thought that the, that the moon did it by heating rocks on the bottom of the ocean. And when those rocks were heated, it, it caused the ocean to, to heat up and boil and swell. And that was high tide. And then when the moon went away, the rocks cooled and contracted the water. And that was low tide, which is a, you know, it's a pretty plausible theory. But also, of course, there were the theories that uh, the moon did it by divine influence. And, um, for example, astrologers cited women's menstrual cycles 
and the tides as evidence of divine power on earth. And the Chinese thought that, that the tide was caused by a dragon going in and out of its cave. You know, and Leonardo da Vinci was convinced it was the breathing of a large beast, and he tried to calculate the size of its lung. Huh. So there are a lot of interesting theories. I mean, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but it's it's pretty fascinating. It, it, you know, you sort of you sort of glanced over sort of the spirituality here, but how how had tide science evolved along with spiritual beliefs ab- about tides? Yes, uh, I, I think it's pretty interesting. And, and the subtitle of my book is uh, "The Science and Spirit of the Ocean," and mm-hmm. that didn't come. That really didn't evolve until um, deep into the research of the book, because I didn't expect to find as much um, spiritual evidence of the relationship with the tides as I did. And, and for example, one of them was I, I went down to the San Blas Islands off of Panama, on the east side of Panama, where the Cunayala people live. And this is an, an autonomous indigenous group. And they have two views of the tide. One is that it's a spiritual visitor from another dimension that comes to check up on the village. And if the tide decides that the equilibrium is intact, it recedes. And if not, it stays. And they also, of course, have sober scientists that tell them that if sea level rises in the next um, about three feet in the next 50 years, as it's conservatively estimated to do, that they will lose all their islands. And that's why I went there. But they entertain both those views about the tide at once. And um, so some people, the elders, for example, in the community, are convinced it's a spiritual, sea level rise is a spiritual problem, and they're attacking it from that point of view. Yet the village also is making plans to move. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's one evidence, and also I went up to the Arctic and um, spent some time with an Inuit elder there named Lucas E. Napoluk, and I actually went down underneath the ice during winter uh, to hunt for fresh blue mussels yeah, I was underneath gonna, the ice. That, that's, uh, Jonathan, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like going under the ice to, to, to get mussels, but go on. Yeah, I know, really. Can I talk about spirituality and, without, and just drop that in there? <laughs> yeah, I would see God for sure in yeah, water that cold. <laughs> no, so so when I talked with him, you know, and, and again, you know, since contact with Europeans, that is primarily a Christian culture up there now, but there are vestiges of a culture that was really um, dr- or guided by shamans. And um, one of the things that Luxi, you know, discussed with me is that the, the, the living relationship of all things. And so he looked at the tide really as a living thing and that the relationship with the tide was as intimate and important as any other relationship with a human being or an animal. Hmm. So really, really fascinating. And then, you know, the, 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 I went to Mont Saint-Michel in France, and, and uh, that's a monastery that was built in the 7th century, and it's been a Benedictine monastery um, ever since then. And there are monks and sisters that practice there today, and I, I wanted to interview them. It took me a couple of years to get permission, but I did finally get permission to, uh, or an invitation to a silent lunch and a half-hour interview with them and discussing their, their spiritual relationship to God and the monastery and the tide. 
And so uh, quickly, talk about, so what did they say about their relationship with the Tide? Well, um, well, first of all, they, you know, I, I didn't say that the, the, this monastery is completely Tide-wrapped. It's, um, it's in the, the western part of France, in Normandy, mm-hmm. and it's off the coast in, a, in a, a, a sand flat area where the tide is 45 feet, the largest in Europe. And so the tide comes racing in, and it wraps all the way around this monastery every mm-hmm. day, twice a day. So I thought, of course these monks who had dedicated their life to a spiritual practice and relationship with God would have some something to say about the tide and its influence on their practice. And indeed, you know, they, um, they talked about uh, the, the tides as a, as a natural phenomenon that brings them and everybody that visits there closer to God. I'm speaking with Jonathan White. He's a marine conservationist, surfer, we're going to talk about that in a minute, and author of a new book called Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan Capehart sitting in today for Leonard Lopate, and I'm speaking with Jonathan White. He is the author of a new book called Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Uh, we were just talking about Mont Saint-Michel in, in France, and um, part of your, your resume, Jonathan, is that um, you're a surfer. And so I have to ask you, did, did the study of ocean waves evolve along with the study of tides? Well, yes, it did actually. Um, um, it's it's interesting because uh, the you know you can you can divide up the the evolution of the thinking about tides into three or four different areas, and one of them was uh, was waves. And there was a long um, let's see, there was in the in, I think it was the early 1800s that there was a the tide um, the tide thinking was really around waves. It was thought that the the tide was a very large wave that circled the South Pole and that broke up into the bigger oceans and traveled up those oceans, so hmm. up the Pacific and up the Atlantic. And for a long time, it was thought that that's um, how, the, how the tides work. Now, in some ways, there's a, there is a vestige of that that is true. For example, the tide is a very long, low wave that travels around the world. In fact, it's at, as fast as a, as a modern jet, 450 miles per hour. But it doesn't. That's not the essence of it. And um, so I have a chapter in the book that, that, that really revolves around a big wave surfing because of my interest in, sur- in surfing, I guess, and, um, and how the theory and, the, th- and the, the evolution of the thinking about waves tied in. Ooh, that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad pun, mm. but tied into the, uh, to the history of tide thinking. So, um, um, Jonathan, we have a, a caller, Nick, from Manhattan, and vis-a-vis the, the discussion we had, I don't know if you heard it, the discussion with David Barron about his book, American Eclipse. Nick, you are on the line. Ask your, your question of Jonathan White. Yeah, hey. So just related to that previous interview, I was curious to know if uh, the solar eclipse that will happen in August, August 21st. will have any results or will result in any conditions. Uh, uh, you, you dropped out there, but I'm, I'm assuming you were asking, would the solar eclipse have any kind of effect on, on tidal conditions as it happens on August 21st? What do you say, Jonathan? 
Uh, yes, it will. Um, so the, the, as I was mentioning earlier, the largest tides happen during the full moon and new moon. And what's happening there is that the sun, moon, and earth are all aligned. So in a, in a full moon, the moon is on the opposite side of the earth as the sun. And during a new moon, the, the moon is um, between the sun and the earth, right? So that's, uh, there's a really cool Greek word, word called syzygy that describes that. It's called alignment or yoked together. And um, so there are alignments, and then there are super alignments. And, of course, during an eclipse of any kind, that is a super alignment. So you will have or see larger tides during that time. Um, thank you. Thank you for your call, Nick. And um, Linus on the Upper West Side um, has a great question. Linus, you work with tides as a, as a sand sculptor. Is that correct? That's right. I've been doing it all my life, and I've gotten to know the ocean pretty well, although sometimes it gets a little tricky because <laughs> winds affect waves as, um, uh, on the surface, at least. But um, and so I've what, become very, very friendly with the ocean in spite of the fact that I don't swim well. Uh, I work with uh, the tide as it goes out, and then it turns around and erases my work. And so what, ha- what, what have you learned uh, about tides from your, from your experiences? Well, I, one of the things I've learned that in, near the equator, uh, there's sometimes very little tidal movement. So um, I can watch a sand sculpture survive uh, for a day or two or even more. Um, and I've, I've worked in the northern hemisphere and in the southern hemisphere, but the tides have unpredictable personalities and sometimes the ocean appears to be angry and other times quite docile. And do you uh, Linus, let me ask you, do you do you find that when you're creating your sculptures are you trying to race against time, race against the tide? Um, do you use the tide to help you sculpt something or is it are you literally racing against water? Well, I I have choices. I could dig to the water table if I don't want to be interrupted by tidal uh, movement, Uh, but uh, that involves more work than I'm usually prepared to do, so I follow the tide as it goes out, uh, and that enables me to work with wet sand, and then the tide turns around and takes away the sculpture. Uh, So I'm not really working against the tide, I'm working with it, because to me, the most interesting part of what I do is watching the interaction of my art and the movement of the water. It also makes me very aware of the ecosystem, uh, and it gives me an opportunity to talk to the crowds that normally surround my Mm. work to talk about things like barrier island ecology and ocean dumping and microplastics and overfishing and maybe sonar and right. ship dumping because well, that's what I'm really about. Right. I, Linus, let me get let me bring Jonathan White back into the conversation. Thank you for for your call there Linus. And Jonathan, you um you know Linus has um done sand sculptures i think for like 60 something years he's done it all over all over the world and i'm wondering if you uh in your study of tides and and waves if you've run across linus's in in your travels people who have that 
um, I think Linus called it a, a a relationship with with the tides. Well, I would. I guess I. I immediately comes to mind shellfish growers um, because they 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 live by the tides, and many many fisher people do as well. Of course, in the like in the Bay of Fundy, a really good example is uh, you know people who fish, and um, the Bay of Fundy has a, a record high tide of 54 feet six inches, which is 10 feet larger than the next largest tide in the world. And um, so, as you can imagine, in a lot of their marinas, their boats go all the way aground during the low tide. So they can only fish during the high tides. They can only get their boat out of the harbor during high tides. So they know exactly when that is, and it changes every day, of course. So they get their boats ready, and as soon as it hits the water's high enough for them, their boats to float, they go out, and they have to stay out for about 12 hours, mm. no matter what, right? And then come back in, because otherwise they can't get in. So there, um, you know, that's a really good example, and that happens around the UK quite a bit, and up in the Arctic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were talking about the, the, the relationship between the fishermen and Bay of Fundy. Uh, what about the relationship between the sandpipers and the tides? Yes, yeah, so the first chapter talks quite a bit about that, and and uh, so this is a, a small sandpiper, a semi-palmated sandpiper that that breeds up in the Arctic, and they make one long migration every year down to Suriname, and they make one stop, and that's in the Bay of Fundy, and they do that. Um, it's speculated primarily because there's a very small mud shrimp that lives in the mud flats of the Bay of Fundy and in the very large tides there they can they can land there and in six or seven days follow the tide all the way down and all the way back up kind of like Linus does with his artwork mm. but they are eating during that time and they eat this is a this is a bird by the way the size of a ping pong ball and as light and it eats something like 16,000 mud shrimp per tide cycle and over seven days doubles its weight and gains enough calories then to to take to the air and travel nonstop down to Suriname. But um, it's a very interesting and, um, you know, interwoven relationship, codependent relationship with the tide, with the birds, and the Bay of Fundy. Um, you, let's stay in cold climates. You already talked about, um, for a hot minute, uh, when you went to, I think, when you went mussel gathering. Was that in, the, in Arctic Canada? Yes, it was. That was uh, about 1,000 miles north of Quebec and about 200 miles north of, or south of the Arctic Circle. And, and, and what was that experience like for you? I can only imagine that the water was extremely cold. But what I'm just wondering, what did this muscle gathering experience have to do with your understanding of, of how tides work? Well, I went up there originally because um, Arctic Canada has a competing large tide with the Bay of Fundy. There are only these two places in the world that have that 54-foot six-inch record. So I went up there to see it and to talk with the people up there. And while I was returning on my first trip, I heard about them going underneath the ice during the winter. And um, so I befriended somebody there, an elder named Lucasy Napoluk, and he invited me to come under the ice with him. 
Uh, and it took a couple of years, but I finally got the invitation to come um, up there, and I did, of course. And, and so what they do is during just the right tides and just the right ice conditions in the winter, so we're talking about February now, during the extreme low tides, they go out and they chop a hole in the ice when the tide is out, and there's hollow cavities underneath the ice. And they go down underneath those holes into a very womb-like, dark, cave, warm areas underneath the ice, the intertidal zone, and gather fresh blue mussels. And uh, so I did that, of course, with, uh, with Lucas E. Napoluk. And I was up there a week, and we went down several times. And I, I write about it quite a bit, of course, in the book. And um, it was a very otherworldly experience. How many times did you, did you actually go down? Uh, three or four times during that week, and and so it, it's it's not. I had this vision of of be, you going in a wetsuit in a pool, uh, pull, pulling up um, pulling up muscles, but it does sound like it um, it is an otherworldly experience. You know, I keep there are there. I think you said there's like four hundred relationships going on with the tides. Can you tell me what what is marine? marine tidal energy yes uh well that's um of course the the there's a huge amount of energy in the ocean both in waves and tides and currents and so forth and um i mean it's been speculated that if we could harness even a fraction of that we could we could certainly satisfy all the global energy needs but it's very very difficult to harness that energy uh the tide tide energy is of course harnessing the power of the tides and converting it into electricity and it's actually um you know tide energy it's got a long long history in the 1600s there were thousands of tide mills all over europe and, and the east coast of the united states that and those mills were used to for, for uh, sawing lumber to making uh, paper to um, irrigation and all sorts of things well um Really, since the, you know, I'd say in the last 50 years, there have been all kinds of attempts to harness it by putting um, um, devices, what they call devices, down underneath the water midstream to capture the current. And these are these often look like windmills that are just placed down underneath the water in current areas about five knots or so that's optimum and as they turn they generate power and then that's fed into the grid and where it where the electricity is needed and um, right now there's a lot of experimentation going on and there are a number of tied devices in the water that are generating electricity and have been in there for quite a while like up in alaska and up in maine and down in Australia and a number of places in the UK, mm-hmm. it's still it's still a fairly um, undeveloped um, or unresolved uh, technology because it's so difficult. The ocean environment right. is so hostile, but um, I think it's going to become a part of the picture, a part of the renewable energy picture. And so, Jonathan, I can't let you go without talking about. I can't believe I've spent this, we've spent this entire time talking about tides and not making the, the connection to climate change. And um, I just, what do tides um, around the world reveal about climate change? Well, you know, of course, climate change and sea level rise is, is a whole. That's a, that's a that's a kind of a larger scope of tide 
um, phenomenon. You know, the tides actually happen on top of the sea level, of course, and sea level traditionally, historically, geologically has been changing over thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. You know, 19 million years ago, sea level was 75 feet higher than it is today, and and 14,000 years ago, sea level was 450 feet lower than it is today. So that's always changing like a tide. And, um, and as sea level changes, you know, uh, of course, accelerated by global warming, homogenic global warming, that, that situation is changing rapidly. And as sea level does rise, it changes the natures of the tide so that we could end up with larger tides in some places and actually smaller tides in other places. And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Jonathan White, for being our Please Explain uh, uh, explainer today. Jonathan White is the author of Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean from Trinity University Press. Jonathan, again, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Jonathan.